Hello, and welcome to another episode of Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. I would just like to remind everybody that you can reach us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from listeners or, or potential guests. In just a moment, we shall have Gayatri Jolly, and she is the founder of Master G and Daughters. In just a moment, she's going to be with us and tell us all about what she is up to. And um, once again, thanks for listening. This is Heartstock. As I went walking that ribbon the highway, I saw the Welcome to Heartstock Radio. On this episode, we have Gayatri Jolly. She's the founder of Master G and Daughters. Hi, Gayatri. Hi, Carol. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being on Heartstock. Can you give our listeners a little introduction here? What is Master G and Daughters, and what is it that you do there? Master G and Daughters is a company in India, based out of India. Uh, but we work with customers all over the world. Uh, we train women and educate women in India in villages and in informal housing settlements, which are notoriously called slums, in skills that help them earn livelihood and earn money in the fashion industry. So in India, there's uh, the role of the pattern maker, uh, which is colloquially called Master G, is a highly a discriminated role where we only find men in the role of the pattern maker. And for those who work closely in the fashion industry, uh, you understand how important the role of the pattern maker is. And I would say that uh, for those looking at the industry from the outside, you can take for granted that this is one role that has a lot of power and authority. And if you work in Southeast Asian contexts, you would get to see that this role is almost always held by a man and this is because that's an oral tradition that exists here where these skills are passed down from one generation of male pattern makers to the next. The father teaches, son teaches, younger brother. And somehow, for decades and decades, this skill has not been passed down to the next generation of daughters. And this is why we exist. This is why I set up this company a few years ago uh, to work towards the discrimination and the gender disparity that exists in the industry. So we always start our programs with our discussion about you and what led you on this path in life. So can you share with our listeners just a little bit about what motivated you? I mean, I could tell that you're very passionate about this. And what was it that instilled this passion inside of you, Gayatri? I think it's always a few different instances and the point in time, which is the inflection point, is always cumulative of several life experiences that move you and push you towards this one moment where you feel that uh, you really want to act upon a certain feeling. And I think there were several shaping moments in my life. And I would go back to when I was a teenager, when I spent a lot of time with my mother in her, at her NGO, at her nonprofit in New Delhi, India, where she worked towards healthcare, uh, children's education, and vocational education for adults in the slums of Delhi. And 
as a child, I feel like just accompanying my mom to these places was like a subconscious learning process as to how coming from a privileged life uh, to coexist with so much discrimination, uh, what that meant for the community and what that meant for society. And how could me, with all the access that I had, serve this community and create opportunities for the women there? And all of this was really subconscious because obviously I wasn't going there to to work. I was going there just because my mom was taking me there because uh, she didn't want to leave us at home, my sister and I. And I think that was just such a great experience and it was so valuable because looking back when I'm, as I'm building my business now, there's so much I have learned that I couldn't have learned through books or through a formal education that I know about how these communities function and what their problems are, what are the kind of issues that women face. So I would say the first exposure to this was going to the field with my mom as I grew up and I studied business and after studying business at Babson College in Boston, I moved on to studying fashion because that was really my childhood passion. I realized while working with Armani and Diane von Furstenberg in the garment district in New York City, that patent makers were in fact women um, in New York City, working with working in the studios there, you realize that women being patent makers is actually pretty normal and it's highly normalized. Uh, and you don't even think twice before wondering, you know, whether it's a man or a woman. And just being in the aura of dresses being made for powerful women like Michelle Obama or Lady Gaga at Diane von Furstenberg, um, under the mentorship of certain pattern makers there who were women, uh, I started to connect the dots as to how much discrimination we were accepting on a daily basis in the industry in India and how much of it was not okay and unacceptable for someone like me who had the privilege to study fashion design at Parsons, which is one of the top universities for fashion in the world. And then coming back to India and seeing the disparity. Um, once, once I saw that problem, it was almost impossible to unsee it. And I just wanted to find a solution for this problem. Yes. And I'm just curious, maybe you can help our listeners understand what conditions and things are like there, you know, the the level of disparity and maybe what the root source of that is. So are you speaking with us from Delhi now? And is that where Master G is located? Yes. So I am very much in New Delhi, uh, which is where the headquarters of Master G and Daughters is. Although we have training centers all over the country, so in over 10 states all over India, in the north, west, and south of India, we have 23 locations and in 10 different states. And I would say that the way in which this discrimination becomes extremely, extremely obvious is when you see that you can walk into any garment factory in India, and what you will notice is that there are no women pattern makers. You will find women in roles which are highly dispensable. So cutting threads at the end of the production line, attaching buttons, doing things that don't require much of a skill, which means that you don't get paid very much and anyone could replace you very quickly. Whereas the higher rung roles in manufacturing, in fashion, are mostly held by men. So, you know, when women hold uh, roles of power and authority, at their workplace, it kind of has a domino effect on their families and in their community as well. I think their their roles aren't limited to how 
they are in the workplace, which is why I think it's so important that women become pattern makers in, in these factories in India is because they start to have that respect and dignity even out in the world. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like your mother was a big influence in your life as a role model. Can you talk a little bit about that and how did she become empowered and what was her background like? I mean, this sounds like a kind of a generational, systemic wide wall that exists. And, and how do you see that it's maybe breaking down from your mom's generation to yours she has been a huge inspiration for me in my life. And I think that every future generation stands on the shoulders of the previous generation. And to that extent, I would say that any work that's done in the space of women's empowerment or emancipation is incremental. So we stand on the shoulders of the women that came before us and they did their share of the work and then handed it over to us so that we can take it forward. So I think in many ways, uh, she fought some of the battles that she could in her generation so that we wouldn't have to fight them in ours and then we have to take it from there. It's kind of like passing on uh, a family business in some ways, you know, but you kind of realize that you couldn't do what you can do now if she hadn't fought those battles back then. And I think she also gets a lot of this from her father who was a feminist in his own right. He worked for the Indian Air Force is like super inspiring and passed on a lot of those values to her. And what did she do? It sounded like she was in healthcare. So she started her nonprofit about 20 years ago when I was still in middle school. And through her nonprofit, she raised funds from different corporations and individuals so that she could provide healthcare to the underserved in and around New Delhi. So a lot of individuals that don't have access to healthcare through the government or through private or can't afford private healthcare, uh, kind of fall in the middle and fall through the cracks. And those are the people that she was most passionate about helping. And she still does that. She's helped over 200,000 people get access to healthcare till now. And going from India, coming to the United States, was that your first experience here in the U.S. going to school or had you been here before? I'm just wondering... So I traveled to the United States back in, I would say, 1998. That was my first visit to the U.S., but that was very much like a tourist. I was there with my family for a few days. But one thing I really like to attribute a lot of my early education is to travel. Uh, My parents insisted that we visit all the seven wonders before we were 18. So every summer we travel to see a new wonder of the world and For my father, a lot of the education was visiting the museums and learning about the culture and history of all of the new countries we went to. So extremely grateful that he had that vision uh, to use our our summer vacations as like an opportunity to see a new place, learn about new people. I think it really helped develop an acceptance and tolerance for differences in people. And then what was it like when you did come here to go to school? And how many years were you here before you went back and founded Master G? It was really different. The education system is very different. It took me a couple of years in my freshman and sophomore year to get used to the new education system. But there were so many opportunities to learn and uh, to meet different people. Babson is very diverse. There were students from different countries. And then when I did complete my business education, uh, I moved back to India briefly 
where I worked with my family business, after which I moved to New York to study fashion. And that was a couple of years. So it was, it's very different in terms of infrastructure, culture, access to a lot of things. But I find that all of the exposure and learning that I had in the U.S. has been instrumental in helping me build Masterji to where it is now. And I feel that we are contributing to building communities in India as a result of all the learnings I've had the opportunity to have, have, which I'm passing on to my team and therefore to all of the women. We've trained over 2,000 women so far, and we have several partners that help us execute that. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about working in your family business there in India for a few years, it sounded like, before you came back to go to Parsons. What was that like and what Mm -hmm. did you learn? That was, I like to call it my MBA (laughs) because it was really intensive. Uh, My dad uh, had me participate in the functioning of each department. So I had the opportunity to learn sales, marketing, manufacturing, accounting. So it was kind of like a crash course in how every department is run. And my biggest takeaway from there has been how to build systems. Because when you are building an institution that you want should outlive you as a founder, you really need to focus on systems and values. And to ensure that it does continue and perpetuate beyond your lifetime. So that's really been the focus. Was this in uh, clothing manufacturing? Also? No, no, it's a totally, totally different industry, not related to clothing or skilling, not related to Master G's line of business at all. But it, but it was manufacturing? It was manufacturing of skincare, home care, and fabric care products. Oh, okay. So I can only imagine that was extremely helpful. And um, I love what you just said about systems and the importance of that. We're going to take our Midway Point break here in just a moment. We shall be right back with Gayatri Jolly. This is Heartstock. Welcome back to Heartstock Radio. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. Today we're speaking with Gayatri Jolly, and we were just discussing and talking about her experiences that led her to founding Master G. And uh, we've already talked a little bit about your mission and the importance of it. Can you maybe share a little bit with our listeners? The impact that you've seen in the women's lives, you, you've trained, you said, over 2,000 so far? Yeah, so we've enrolled over 2,000 women so far, and the changes in their lives have been phenomenal. And I think the real value that I see in the change in their lives is more generational. And it's something that's going to keep unfolding in years and decades to come, uh, because you really see the change in a community's mindset when the women start to make decisions for their children that their mothers may not make for them. So I think this kind of impact unpacks in in several layers over time. But I'd really love to share the story of one woman who, uh, I mean, I think of her very often because the kind of steps that she took to change her life were phenomenal, difficult, and required a lot of courage. 
this is a training center that we have in a state called Haryana, which is not too far from New Delhi, where we are based. And it's known for extreme discrimination against women, a lot of female feticide. And we know that the condition of women is pretty, pretty bad in the villages so in Haryana. So I'm sorry, I, I have to kind of pause there because you said something pretty impactful. You said female feticide. Can you help her, help us understand all that that means? Sure. <laughs> sorry. So it is so much uh, to what that means and where yes. it comes from and how it impacts lives. The, the thing with female feticide is that it's obviously illegal, but even the detection of the sex of the child is illegal here, but there are clinics that will still do it for you and carry out illegal abortions uh, because a lot of families prefer not to have a female child. So they would end up aborting as many as three to four female fetuses just anticipating and hoping for a male child. And it's not uncommon to see three to four sisters and then the youngest would be a brother. So a lot of the families that we work with, you'd end up seeing this ratio of sisters to brother, uh, and then you know what's really going on. And we've had instances where our students, who sometimes are married and have kids, a couple of them dropped out because their abortions were unhygienic in the circumstances that they were done, and they ended up getting so sick that they could never come to class again. And that was really heartbreaking because these women had so much potential and promise, but you can't really fight Beyond a point, it's really difficult for us to fight some of these bigger fights. So let's kind of continue on a, a bit more. Um, you were Before I interrupted there, you were sharing the story of uh, someone that had some big hurdles and achieved great success for themselves. Yes. Um, so this was a particular student, and I'll avoid taking her name just to protect her identity. So she got married very young. And she moved to her husband's family's home, as is customary uh, in a lot of states in India that you live with the family once you're married. And very soon realized that her husband was an alcoholic, he was abusive, and she didn't have any money to spend on herself or her needs um, because he wouldn't give her any. And she didn't have an education or a vocation, so she couldn't really make her own money. A few years passed, and in her village, a master G center opened, and she decided to join in and get trained. And once she started coming to class, you know, we all encourage students to share a little bit about their lives, and if they are struggling with something, we encourage them to bring it to the to the classroom so that they can all kind of build a sense of friendship and camaraderie and support each other. Because in the village, everyone knows what's going on in each other's homes. It's it's a bit of an open environment. So if if women next door know what's going on, perhaps they can be of support uh, rather than approach the situation from a point of judgment or or conclude a certain thing as opposed to being supportive. So I had heard a lot of stories about what was going on in her house and how she was at risk, at extreme risk of physical harm. Um, and she had, she had been at the receiving end of several cases of abuse. Just one morning, she comes to class with all of her stuff in a bag and a huge scar on her face. And of course, we all know something's going on, uh, but we didn't know why she brought all of her stuff that day. And she just goes up to the teacher, puts her bag down, and she says, I don't know what I'm going to do at the end of the day, 
because I've left my husband's home and my parents won't take me back because they think it's disrespectful and it's it's going to bring a lot of shame to the family if she goes back to her parents' home and she had no other place to go. So she said, I don't know where I'm going to go at the end of the day, but right now I just wanted to come to Master G so I can attend my class. And I just thought that was, that's the most courageous thing I've ever seen any of our students do because she actually had no place to sleep that night. Mm -hmm. And it's not like these areas are safe. Uh, there were no shelter. There was really nowhere to go. But she knew that she knew that she had one place she could come to, which was the classroom. And that's when I realized that we need to keep doing what we're doing and we need to keep doing it more and more uh, because this is our refuge. This is this is home for so many people that don't feel at home back at home. Mm-hmm. And help us understand, you know, just like how you were funded and you have a production line. So you have... Uh, products that you're selling. Help us understand how all that works. Sure. So I can talk about the business model of it because that's how we sustain ourselves and that's how we are able to help all the women that we work with. So we were funded by Acumen Fund, which is a New York-based social impact fund. And as for our revenue streams, we partner with corporates and H&Is and foundations to run training centers that are sponsored by them. So we design the modules, run the, run the training centers. Uh, so we're paid for that. And then we enable NGOs to set up these classrooms based on our systems, our quality control, our assessments and certifications. We are the official knowledge partner for the, the National Skilling Corporation in India for the apparel sector. So we design modules that we also offer them. So there are several ways in which we are able to generate revenue. We also manufacture products such as garments, home goods, accessories for a lot of global, small to medium, sustainability-focused fashion brands that would like to have a transparent supply chain, ethical production. There are a lot of overseas brands that want to produce with women's groups in India, uh, but are unable to find high-quality production, which is what we take care of. So all of our training centers also produce products for these brands, and we facilitate that. We receive the orders, we make sure we identify the right students for the job, we get the products made, we do the quality check, and then supply the goods to the brands. Mm. And I'm wondering, have you experienced any pushback, any kind of, oh, I don't know, just people that don't like what you're doing and want to stop, want you to stop? Yes. Yeah, I think whenever you try to change an existing system, and we know that no system is really broken. Every system exists to serve somebody. So, of course, here we are trying to change an existing system or rather create a new system that counters an existing system. So naturally, there will be pushback and, and there is pushback every single day. We're trying to create opportunity and value where there was no scope of doing that before. So, I mean, resistance comes from different places at different times. But like I said, the work is incremental. And I feel like our job is to do the incremental change and pass it on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel that you're unsafe? Or I mean, in what form does this pushback occur? At a very basic level, it occurs with 
certain members of the community that don't want to see women have independence, have agency, have money in their hands, because then they start to ask questions. They start to question the status quo. They start to question why certain injustices became so mainstream and became so normalized. So I think the whole process of questioning leads to unsafe conditions for the women themselves. Mm-hmm. We've had people come up to the classrooms, you know, asking where their wives are and why they why they leave home every day to go to class, whereas earlier they never left home uh, because they weren't allowed uh, to go outside the house. They had to be at home all the time. That's certainly been one. I've had some of those men call me and threaten me as well. So, hmm. so it does happen at, at multiple levels, I would say. Yes. And you mentioned NGO partners that help set up the training centers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? How do you find them? And how does that partnership tend to work? Sure. So sometimes the NGOs approach us and they want to run our training modules And then they find a sponsor to cover the cost because we have costs associated with developing uh, training modules. We have a full curriculum design team that's constantly innovating on content. And then there's a team that ensures that the training is executed as per quality standards so that the brands that eventually partner with us are able to get the best quality products. So because there are costs associated with executing this program, we have NGOs that either raise their own funds and then come back to us to say, okay, now we can pay for this. We'd like to run your course for two years or five years at our location. Or there are situations where the sponsors themselves come to us and say, could you help us find an NGO to run this? Uh, We'd like to pay for it. And we'd like to train a few thousand girls, but we just don't know where we want to do it. We're okay to to find any location that works works for you. So in that situation, we would find a really well-reputed NGO partner that could execute this on the ground. And the reason we look for NGO partners is because India is so diverse. And now we're looking at certain locations in Africa as well. Uh, Every new region is so diverse that we believe it's best to go in with a local partner as opposed to trying to uh, penetrate that market ourselves. Mm -hmm. So any, any local NGO partners that know the culture, know the language are better placed to run our programs on our behalf. And then we provide all the trainings required for their staff and their team so that they can successfully run it. So we have just a little shy of two minutes left, and I'm wondering what lays ahead and, of course, how folks might reach you. So we do have a website where we talk a lot about the different things that we do, and it's www.masterg.in, and that's spelled M-A-S-T-E-R-G dot I-N. Mm-hmm. And do you have any plans for the future, any exciting things laying ahead that you'd like to share with us? Yes. So uh, in India, we have a really high growth rate of smartphone penetration, even in the rural areas. So we are developing technology that would help women learn through their smartphones. So even if they don't have access to a physical training center or a classroom, they can still learn on their phones. That's one exciting thing that we're working on and also partnering with a lot more fashion brands overseas. So, you know, to be able to extend this ecosystem that we have designed from scratch, we've kind of brought together all of these women and we would love to partner with more brands. Hmm. 
Thank you so much for sharing your story and the work that you're doing. Very challenging, and those women are are so blessed. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving me this platform to share our story. This is Heartstock Radio, and as usual, we will be back next week. Thanks to Gayatri Jolly of Master G. I'm Carol Murphy, your host. See you next week. Peace. This land was made you and me As I went Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. Listen, but on-